Hey guys, I'm your host Smita Gunturi and welcome to Journey Podcast, your weekly podcast on transformational journeys. Hope you guys enjoy. Hello everybody. I have Stacy Blanchet with me today. She is a philanthropist, advocate, entrepreneur, and she has her life lessons start to people around and she is a very special guest for me today. The reason I'll tell you why it is a special guest uh I resonate with her story a lot. I have seen a lot of her interviews, a lot of her notes. Uh, I took a lot of notes uh, while watching those interviews, are uh, reading through her articles. I I started following her on IMDb as well. So yes, I wanted I don't specifically have a specific introduction for her because she is of many talents, of much strength. So I wanted to leave the floor to her and uh, let her speak her own story. Thank you for being here Stacy. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Please, please go ahead and share your story with us. Well, um you know, everybody's I'm trying to figure out how to sort of start this, but I I think the one thing that people can always know about me is I'm somebody who's not afraid of change. I welcome it. I love change. I love everything about change. I am actually known for reinventing myself every 5 years. So when I think I've actually mastered something or I've gotten kind of complacent in doing um something I'll switch to a completely different gear. And I'm not really quite sure where that came from. I started out my life in my early childhood uh very well loved, uh had a really great multi-ethnic family. My dad is Cuban, my mom is French and Lebanese and My, I grew up in my grandparents' Cuban household with mariachis and then I would go home to my mom and my dad who were very quiet and you know very different and we had what I considered to be a very happy um I want to say a happy home because I had no idea that behind the scenes my parents were not working I had no idea that their marriage was falling apart. I just assumed because of the way everything seemed to my brother and I and very deliberate calculation on their part of not letting us see them ever be cruel to each other, ever speak badly to each other. Everything that they did was behind closed doors and um that all changed in 1976 when my parents decided that they were going to separate. And I think both of them would acknowledge that they did not handle it the best way that they could have. I think both of them would have acknowledged that they were both in a lot of pain. Neither one of them wanted the marriage to end, but it wasn't working for them. And I think that it's hard when you are in pain yourself to be thinking about other people's pain as well. So, you know, but at the time, of course, as a kid, you are upset. at the way that they're handling it because you want them to be your parents and it's not until you get to be older that you look back on and I think you know they tried to maintain normalcy we lived four blocks from each other so that my my mom and my dad can see us both and I think they both tried to navigate what they were going to do after each other and that was very hard because you know I I think even to this day I, they still very much love each other um but they just you know for whatever reason they really just couldn't make it work um so my mom trying to shield us 
from the move, us leaving our family home, she sent us to go be with my aunt and my uncle, who were my second family, and we had spent multiple time with them. And for some reason on this particular trip, my brother and I were on an Indian reservation in Montana, and my uncle sexually abused me for the entire summer that I was there. Um, I don't ever really talk about what the sexual abuse was, but I'm, you know, I always tell everybody I'm more than happy to tell people there was no rape involved. It was just touching. Um, anyone can ask me questions about it. I think the most important thing that I ever heard about sexual abuse was from a gentleman that Oprah was interviewing. And he said that he killed the person that she could have been because it's sort of like murdering you at an age of 11 and you have to become somebody very different. And I actually think that probably from 11 on, I have just been stumbling through life, even today. Um, I don't know if my mistakes are back to that time period or if they're just mistakes that I've made in life. Um, there are clear things that came out of that. I'm a boundaries person. Nobody can get into my space without being invited. I am, um, I'm a fighter. I will not go quietly or easily. Um, and I think it's because that was taken away from me very early on because I wasn't allowed to say anything. Um, I pay attention to my intuition always. I never say to my, if I hear somebody say, you know what, get out of this situation, I'm gone. I'm not even going to think about it. I don't care if I'm wrong. I'm out of there. Um, I think that from my teenage years to probably my mid-20s were the most mistakes that I made in terms of falling in love with the wrong person, um, looking for something, not not able to really get my feet on the ground, not having family support behind me, um, taking my uncle on in court and winning against him. Um, you know, therapy helped me a lot. And I think that I decided somewhere around 27 or 28 that I'm making my own road. And when I decided I was gonna do my own road, that was the turning point for me because then I just didn't care. So it became about me and my journey and what was gonna make my journey the best journey for me. And one of the things I say that, that I'm very lucky is that I have what I call a safety net from my parents. And it's knowing that nothing's ever gonna happen to me. And so it allows me to really try all kinds of stuff. And man, they're the first persons at my fashion shows. They're the first person to, you know, get involved in anything that I'm doing, any crazy idea that I've come up with that I want to try. They're like, you know what? That sounds pretty cool. Go for it. You know, or what do you need my, you know, what kind of help do you need? And I think that's probably the greatest thing that you can give a kid. Give them a safety net. Doesn't have to be financial, but let them know to go for it and not be afraid. And I think that um, that reflects in everything that I do career-wise, and how I've lived my life is that I live by my own rules. And I'm what they call a job jumper. Like I said, I like to reinvent myself every five years. If it gets too boring, if it gets too complacent, 
I'm gone. And so I think that that's what probably scares people more than anything about me. It's like, is she gonna be here? Is she gonna, she gonna stay? And I just tell people, I'm sorry, I can't give you a guarantee. <laughs> Not willing to do that. And you know, if you want my expertise, good. If you don't, then find somebody who's willing to give you a guarantee. But I'm gonna go the way I'm gonna go and I'm gonna do the things that I'm gonna do. And um, I'm just gonna be, I'm, I'm on my own journey. So it's the journey to me, as I like to call it. Send it to myself. That's where yeah. it came from. Send it to myself. That's where it came from, really. Awesome. Awesome. You mentioned in one of your interviews talking about detachment. Yes. What does that mean to you? And why does I, that came to you, first off? Well, I think that because of the fact, I'll give it, uh, and the only way I can do it is kind of in a graphic sense is that when I was being sexually abused, my abuser made me watch him while he was abusing me. So I was looking at him and you have to go someplace in your head that's not there. And then if it's done over and over and over again, you, you become what I call a master in the art of detachment. Yes. And so I think for me, what that means for me is that I can walk away from any situation and anyone at any given time, and I'm not going to miss them. Once I've made that decision to go, I'm going to go. And I don't know if that's a good thing or if that's a bad thing. I don't know if it's worked 100% for me in my life. I can only say that I'm very happy with where I am. False and all. Bad decisions, good decisions, wrong turns, right turns, experiments, not experiments. But I am really a master in the art of detachment. I really can um, walk away. And that's, I think that's a scary thing. You know, because you always have to wonder if you can walk away, did you ever really care? And if you don't care, you know, that's not a good thing. You know, I mean, I, I love my dogs. I love my family. I would never want to leave my family. But I think if somebody were hurting me and I needed to leave, I'm going to make that decision. I'm going to go. Yes. So, and I know because I've had to do it at the age of 19, my therapist brought charges against my uncle. And in doing so, blew my entire family open and I had to leave my dad's side of the family, my real, dad, my real dad's side of the family. And I've never had a relationship with them since. They chose my uncle. So they get my uncle. So I now know that I can make that hard decision and I'm gonna be okay. I think the reason that people don't make that decision is because they don't know what's gonna be like on the other side. They don't trust themselves to be able to heal or move on or be able to have a great life. And, and looking back on that, that was the greatest thing that anybody ever did for me was blowing that whole situation up because I never had to face my, my abuser again. I was able to go on and rebuild a life and make myself happy and heal myself and move on. I have no idea what it means to forgive him. I, I moved on, you know what I mean? Like I, he, he's dead now, you know, I was like, he's dead now. So 
I never forgave him. I don't care for him. I'm never going to like him. I just, you know, he just, bye, you know, like, bye. <laughs> Does that make sense? I'm sorry. Yeah, I absolutely. <laughs> the reason most of the questions that I have here, uh, I'll tell you, to be honest, like, I see you as my same personality right in front of me. Most mm. of the things, when you talk about detachment, even I did the same thing. It's not like I, I pulled out anybody onto, uh, I mean, to the justice or anything, but whoever did to me, those are all the family members. Not one person. I had the same situation with 14 people from the age of eight, seven, up until 17. Wow. So having that kind of situation at house, uh, once I started accepting everything and I wanted to start my journey to myself in your words, I started touching with everybody because for example, like even my mom, she didn't understand what I'm talking about. She was like, are you serious now? Though she kind of know what happened, but she don't want to accept it. And she was like, it's up to you, whatever you wanted to do. But once I started doing it, the article that I sent you, I gave it to her to read. And she was like, why now? Why do you choose to do this? Why do you want to talk about the family coming out? And what is that giving to you? So that's why I wanted to ask you questions. Like, I mean, you being such a successful person right now, who can look up to you? You are the person there. So if a person like me can look up to you, what would be your answer for such kind of scenarios? What you, what's, wait, what's the question? I'm sorry. Like if how to get out of the situations? If the family is not accepting, you started moving on. So if somebody is in that situation- you Gotta get rid of the family. I'm sorry, I had to do it. You know, I mean, I, I had to make the hard decision. So, I mean, and everybody that I've ever spoken to that has been in these kind of situations has always stayed in the family. So they were never allowed to really heal 100% or even 80% because every time you're back in there, you're realizing that nobody cared enough to fight for you. Exactly. And that's a hard place to be. And one of the things that I think um, is most important. And I, I have, I have no psychological training or anything, but one of the things that I have realized is that your self-esteem is formed by the age of two or three. So if you're not loved as a baby or as a child very early and shown that you matter, you will spend your whole life trying to find it. And at your core, you will feel not loved. So it doesn't matter until you deal with that, and I actually have no idea how anyone could even deal with that. But having been in a situation where I came from a lot of love, I was able to, at 11, come back from Montana, tell my family, and then demand that he never be anywhere near me again. Now, in my personal opinion, he should have gone to jail. It's against the law. I'm sorry. Yep. Yep. You know what I mean? It's like, start prosecuting these people. Start turning them in. I'm telling people... Every time I hear somebody go, you know, I was abused, but I don't want to name my abuser. No, name them. You know, why are you shamed? They should be shamed, right? It's like, start naming these people. I don't give a crap if it's going to hurt them or hurt their publicity or it's like, I don't want to, if you don't want to name somebody, then don't come out with your story. Because to me, it's just, it's just, it just, it has no, you know, everybody knows it was my uncle. It's in, it's in, um, his wife is still alive. Both my grandparents have passed away, but you know, when my documentary came out and when the written piece was written, everybody was still alive. I didn't care. You know, it's like, 
I'm sorry, I don't care. <laughs> you know I me. Mean? there's a special place where he's going and I'm not going to be there after I end this life. So it's like, what do I care? Yes. Um, but I just tell people as you got to get out of the situation. You got to get away from the people that are abusing you. You got to turn them in. You got to do the hard stuff. It's hard stuff. And it's going to hurt a lot of people along the way, but you know what? You're hurt too. And you have to decide whether or not you want to continue to keep getting hurt or if you want to, you know, protect yourself and get that person out of there. I mean, just get them out of there. And if your family, if your parents are not supporting you, I, I don't, you got to leave your parents too, or you've got to start having some distance. You need to find support somewhere. It's got to come from somewhere, but to not prosecute people or to not name them and shame them for what they did, I, I think it's the wrong thing. I think people need to start shaming their abusers. And, um, you know, but I, I will say this, if you're going to do it, you better have proof to back it up because then it becomes liable, right? It's like, so I mean, you could be sued, but good news is, is if they sue you, then you have, you can prove your case in court. You know I mean? It's like, do they really want to go to court with you? So it's a, you know, it's a catch 22. Um, but I, I don't advocate, you know, I do not advocate anyone turning in somebody that's never done anything that I'm against. But if you know somebody's out there hurting people and doing it, because chances are you're not the only one. I don't believe that I was the only one that my uncle sexually abused. Um, I think there were more, but you know, this is, yeah. I mean, this is 1976. My mom would like to tell you that things were done differently back then. I don't know about that. I, I, I don't know. I really don't know if they were. Even today, I hear the stories. So yeah, nothing changed. Yeah. It hasn't changed. Yeah, it hasn't changed. I think how it's being dealt with, sweeping under the rug, especially if it's a family member. But you know, here's the statistic: is that I think it's between seventy and eighty percent are all family members. Yes. Yes. So you know, stop sweeping under the rug. Get yes. these people out of the family. Get them out. Get them away from your kids for Pete's sakes. You know what I mean? At the very least. <laughs> that is so true. I mean, mm -hmm. I never, after, I think I always had this in my subconscious mind. So I'm really careful sending my son to anybody. I have a son, uh, 21 year old, old now. But even when his childhood is going on, apart from my mom, I never left him anywhere. Yeah. You know, I don't know if that was a good thing or a bad thing, right? Because did he miss out? Did he miss out on all this stuff? I mean, I had friends, we had sleepovers, we had a lot of fun. I was able to go to people's houses. So, you know, it, it messed you up psychologically to where it got passed down. Yes. You probably instilled the fear in, in, the, in him that probably didn't need to be there. So I don't know, you know, I mean, like I said, I mean, it, it hurts, it's generational. This gets passed on because it's, it really is. It, it really is the murder of somebody when you when you take away something from them against their will that they weren't willing to go there. Once I started sending my son, that the place was like so safe for me to think. I established a very good communication with my son, and then once he is in a place that he can explain or talk to me about anything, that's when I started sending him for sleepovers or anything. Until then, if you want a sleepover, all your friends are going to come to my house. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sending you anywhere. I don't care. 
You don't care. Yeah. No, another, you know, everybody's got their, everybody has their way. Yep. To do what's important to you. Up until, yeah, as I said, up until he was able to communicate with me on each and everything that is happening around him. It's not like I ask questions or I poke him with all the questions. Mm -hmm. He should be enjoying that while he's talking to me. He is just sharing his day. That's how yeah. normal it should become. Until I came to that point, I never sent him out. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, yeah, once we reach that point, now I don't really care wherever he goes, whatever happens, because after coming back, he'll talk to me for hours about what happened over there or like whom he's talking to or like any, any matter, no, no matter what it is, he'll just start explaining to me. Up until That's the good. point, yes, I was a little scared, I can say for sure. Well, probably the first one, yeah, the first time he's done it out. It was oh, yeah. scary. You know, and, and you know what you, like I, my mom would have never sent us to Montana if she thought that was going to happen to me. Of course. You know, to her, this was a great, my second family. So it never gave her or my dad pause. I mean, it was sort of like we spent Christmases and summers and all kinds of stuff with them and did really fun things and drove across country. And, um, you know, I, there's a lot of stuff that I learned from them there's a big black mark on my relationship with them that unfortunately is going to damage everything else that they did that was great. Yeah. And that's just where it stands, you know. In one of the interview you mentioned, you have a fear of failing. What Not anymore. No, no, no. What I mean, what I meant was, I think in my early twenties and I think in everyone's twenties, you're always afraid to fail. So you don't try. But I my next question, like you, yeah. you continued the statement saying like, now I'm afraid of not trying. Absolutely. Regrets. Yes. And one of, my, one of the things my dad said was it is not possible to get through life without regrets. That would, that would imply that you led a perfect life and that's impossible. So what he said to me was make sure your regrets are smaller than they should be. And that's really the best way to look at it. It's like, you know what? I'm probably going to have regrets, but my, my, I have no fear of failing. None, none whatsoever. That's gone, gone out the door. Could, could care less. <laughs> I think not trying is failing. So in the, in your interview with Deborah, uh, Koblet, you said like, once you wanted to come out of, uh, the shell or with your story to talk about your story outside, you went and you asked permission from your parents that you are coming out. Uh, with your story. Why is it important to you to ask their permission and what answer they gave you and how you actually dealt with that situation? Um, my mom is a very well-known, though she is now, she re just retired this year, a very well-known divorce attorney here in San Diego. My dad is also a very well-known attorney and very well-known in San Diego as well. And the documentary showcases their shortcomings on how they dealt with what happened to me. And, you know, we are now at this point close to 30 years removed from what happened in that time period, 30 to 40 years. There's been a lot of healing, a lot of discussions. And my mom said, release the documentary, let the chips fall where they may. 
because it was how she handled it. And she wow. was, and my dad cried when he saw the documentary because he did get a chance to see it. And I actually did something that was very unique. Um, before the documentary was shown in the film festivals, I had about 28 of my friends over here to my house and I played the documentary and my grandmother, my mother saw it the first time with my friends and nobody knew what it was going to be about. They all assumed it was going to be about fashion. They had no idea. And I mean, I was walking around the room and looking at everybody's faces. My grandmother had a very, very hard time with it because she was very supportive of me when all of this happened. So she spent the whole documentary crying into a pillow and a couple of my friends went and sat with her. Um, and I think that she might have a story though she has passed away. Um, I'm sure that because she was so beautiful when she was younger and had a lot of dates, I think my grandmother probably had some stories that she never shared. I can't say for sure, but um, you know, she's what I call majored in beautiful. <laughs> You know, because she was born in the 1940s, you know, the 1930s, or, and she was just, you know, a Southern belle and a lady. And, um, but watching my friends and everybody and my mom having to sit through that with my friends who did not know the story about what had happened to me, I thought was pretty courageous of my mom. You know, she took it. She's still friends with, you know, she stood up. She loved the film. Um, she's extremely supportive of it. And um, the, the thing that my, both my parents realized was my dad never realized what, how much the divorce had affected me and my brother. And, you know, I, I, they knew that we were damn, I mean, they knew that we were sad. They knew, I, I just don't think that they knew how much we were affected by the choice. And I think if you were to ask them, they would say the divorce hurt me more than being sexually abused because it took away my idea of a happy family that I didn't believe in happy families. And so my dad always said, you know, I don't know if I ruined you ever getting married. I never got married. I never had kids. And so I think that they sort of see that the damage of how they handled it or the, and personally, I, you know, I, I told my dad, I said, I think you guys did a great job. I said, because you never heard any yelling or screaming or fighting or name calling. You guys were respectful. They're still friends to this day. Um, and it was an idea of how to handle situations when things are bad. And I carried that over in all my relationships. I've never had a sit down, drag out, you know, blood curling, fight, scream, yell at you, call you names type of fights. I mean, I, I'm able to communicate and say what it is that's, that's bothering me. And then you move on. Um, and I learned that from my parents. So, I, you know, there's good things that came out of that time period and there's, there's bad things, but they were extremely supportive. And um, I, yeah, they were very supportive. Looking at your successful family background, your grandparents were together without any disturbance for more than three decades. And your parents, though they have the differences, they still respect each other and have that uh, pleasant situation in front of the kids and made the kids to understand what they are going through. Having all those positive scenarios, why do you still choose not to get married? 
You know, I, I never wanted to have children. And I was very, I was very sure of that. By the time I was 13, I knew that I never wanted to have kids. And it always scared me that if I got married, the person that I would marry would change their minds. And then I would have to go through a divorce or if I did get married and I chose to have kids and we went through a divorce, I was looking at situations I did not want to go through. And that could be a fear that I never got over. So, um, you know, that that's probably the biggest fear of failing was that I would never make it in a marriage. Now, one of the things that I tell people is that you're either a roots or a wings person. Can't be both. I'm a wings person. I'm also an eye person. So the very idea that I would ever have to ask somebody's permission on how to do something or want to do something in my life just makes me cringe. And so, you know, those are not really the kind of characteristics that make for a successful marriage. Marriage is a we. And I mean, if you're not willing to enter into it as a we and make decisions in a partnerships, and I, the best thing I ever heard about marriage and love was it's not how long you can look at each other, but how long you can look in the same direction. Absolutely. If, and if I'm changing directions every five years, how could somebody keep up? <laughs> and so it's, you know, I, and I mean, it's not, I mean, I've been in relationships and, and every single one of the relationships that I've ever been in, the men have never gotten married and they never had children. And I always thought that was very interesting because I never believed them when they said that they didn't want to have kids. So I was, to me, marriage was not even going to be a thought process until I was in my forties. So, cause then I figured by then I can't have kids. So okay, you know, it's like, then I can think about it, but man, I mean, you know, then you start have to start asking yourself the simplest questions like, um, is my life going to be better because you're in it? Or is my life going to be worse because you're in it? And, um, you know, I, it's, a, it's a hard, but I think it's the fear of failing. I, 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 you know, I go back to that. This is probably the ultimate fear that I was, was going to end up having to do the same thing to my kids. I mean, just, God, I mean, pull the dagger, pull the dagger out, man. I mean, that would just be like, I want to kill myself if I put my kids through what I, the pain my parents divorce was was really unimaginable for us and um and i think it's because of the illusion of thinking that we were happy i mean maybe if i'd seen the fights it'd be like oh my god please get divorced but it was like it just wasn't like that i mean we had an incredible family i mean they're just my parents are really great people and so it's like when you get two great people together you're on great adventures and you know, we just, you know, it was a time period. It was the seventies. They both were in a, in a rock band. My dad played piano. My mom played tambourine and, you know, we traveled up and down going to Elton John concerts. And I make it sound like it's really fun, but you know what? It really was. And I, and I think if I were to ever have had children, I'd want to be that kind of a parent wow. you know, at the time, you know, like at the time I wanted my parents to be normal. You know, parents that made chocolate chip cookies for you when you came home from school. But no, we would, 
my dad would turn all the lights out on Friday nights and we would put on our favorite album. And back in those days, they had these things called strobe lights, which were red. And it made you look like you were dancing in slow motion. And we would dance on Friday nights to our favorite albums. I mean, those are like, those are amazing memories. And um, I would have wanted to be parents like them. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. You, you mentioned, I have learned what family is to me and I gave it a new definition. What is yeah. the new definition that you gave to the family meaning right now? You know, I have the same friends that I had during my childhood are still in my life today. We all went through the same, I mean, not, I don't know if we all went through the same stuff, but they all knew me when I was going through all of that stuff. And then I've added friends along the way. And I take great pride in the way that I nurture my friendships and I nurture my family relationships. We do things, we travel together as a family, but, and I do the same thing with my, my friends, men and women that are my friends. And I, I call them, I check in on them. I wanna know how you're doing. I wanna know what's going on in your life. Um, and so it, you know, I have, I'm known for my dinner parties and I'll take 12 or 15 people that have never met and throw them all in a dinner party. And by the time we leave, we're making a plan for the next dinner party and everybody's going to bring what they said they were going to bring in the first dinner party. Um, no matter where I do. So I work between San Diego and Los Angeles. And when I go to Los Angeles, my favorite place is the polo lounge at the Beverly Hills hotel. So when I'm in Los Angeles, I will always do one or two dinners at the polo lounge and with groups of people that have never met each other, that you, you worked in the music business or one's an actress and one's in television or somebody's a producer. Or, um, a friend of mine works as a TV host and you know, well, everybody will get together by the time we've left. I mean, it's like everybody stays friends after I leave from LA and then when I come back, I can do a text say, hey, dinner polo lounge, seven o'clock, who's in? You know, and it's like, everybody's in. Um, so I, I pride myself on that, but I'm also somebody who likes to be alone. So I value my alone time as well. And everybody gets that about me. So I can go full steam for maybe a couple of months where I've got dinner parties and, you know, and then I won't want to talk to anybody for like a month because I'm just like, I'm recharging. Everybody's fine with that. They know Stacy's not going anywhere. Um, I'm not a small talker. So um, if I'm texting somebody, it's because I'm making a plan with them. It's never a text of, hey, how are you? Where it's gonna be a running text for 15 or 20 texts. It's like, hey, how about dinner? Hey, how about, you know, cause then I can catch up with you. I can see you. How about lunch? You know, how about let's, um, you know, for my birthday this year in June, I've got eight people and we're all doing sailing. And so it's, it's four hours on the bay of us, you know, seven or eight people hanging out. And, you know, one of us may want to sit and just veg. One of us may want to have drinks at the bar. And I think that my family, I consider to be, I mean, and I cherish it. I mean, these are rock solid, I don't go anywhere. They're going to be with me through thick and thin. And the years have proved that. So if they were going to go, they would have gone a long time ago. 
So the fact that we're still there, even the, you know, married kids still make time. Um, to me, that's family is, is the people that you can count on that you can actually spend time with and that you trust and that actually have your back and you have to be that person too. So it can't just be one way because nobody wants to be in a one-way relationship with somebody where they got to sit and listen to your problems all day long and you don't know anything about them. Yes. I mean, like, why would you want to be there? And you're just basically a sounding board. <laughs> it's like, so it's got to be, I always tell everybody, be what you want. So if you want those kinds of friends, and then you're going to have those kinds of friends, but you've got to be that kind of a friend. You've got to be there for people. You've got to remember important things. you got to know what's going on in their lives. And not just by social media. Ask them. No one, you know. That's, that's how family is. That's what family is to me. Awesome. awesome. Your grandparents are, are uh, raised to you in a way that you are close to church and everything, but your mom and dad are not a church people in the <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So do you believe in God and what do you follow now? You know, I was born, well, I was raised Catholic and I went to Catholic school um, probably my first, I want to say three years, uh, first, second, and third grade. And I think once you have an early introduction into religion, it never leaves you because religion really, to me, is a moral compass. So if you listen to the commandments, it's, you know, all the things that you shouldn't do. It's how you should treat people. And of course, then it's the teachings. I do not, uh, attend church, um, I live my life like there is a God. I'm a science believer. So I believe that I have a very special relationship with God and he or she tells me in, if I'm asking a question, what I should do. I believe in science. So I look for signs of, am I making the right decision? And so far I'd say he's done pretty good. You know I mean? There was a period if I had to be honest about it, probably from like 15 to 25, where I didn't believe in God because of all the stuff that had happened to me. I was angry. How could you do this to me? And so I stayed away from God. I didn't practice it, didn't want to have anything to do with it, never talked about it. And then somewhere around in my 25s, I finally just, I just realized it just wasn't working for me. Like the way that I was doing stuff, the anger, all that stuff, all the fighting and everything. And I just said, okay, you've got to give me a sign. And so that's how I've chosen to live my life. And I like to think that the people that I love the most that have now left me, which is all of my grandparents are now deceased. Um, and I don't wanna think about my dogs that have left me because I love my dogs. That the idea that I'm never gonna see them again kind of makes me a little on the sad side. So I operate on the fact that I'm going to see them again. And the only way I'm going to see them again is by living a good life, you know, be kind. It's not always possible. You do get mad. People do lose their tempers. But if you're like a cruel person, like just in the core, wow, you know, like I don't even want to know you. I'm like, you just got to go someplace else. Like life is way too short. So I, I'm a science person and I think I have a special relationship with them, but I don't follow any particular religion. I was raised Catholic. You also mentioned in one of the interviews that you are obsessed with strong women. 
yeah. Why is that? And do you see yourself right now as a strong woman? Oh, absolutely. I love Catherine Hepburn, but when I was going through all that stuff, when I came back, and this is going to sound so trivial, I became obsessed with Joan Collins from Dynasty. And her character, Alexa Kobe, got me through my teenage years. And I mean, it was, I, it just sounds so weird to say that, but it was like, she was strong. She was misunderstood. Of course she did some bad things, but she did some really great things too. She loved her kids. She would fight for people that she loved tooth and nail, but she never was going to put up with any crap from anybody. And I learned how to be through her. She became my vehicle on how to handle how I needed to handle stuff. And um, I, you know, it, it, I needed to get out of my everyday life. So TV and music became my escape. I would spend eight hours a day under earphones, either listening to albums or listening to TV shows. And when you grow up that way, then that's going to be your mentor. It's not going to be the people around you. That's you're going to mentor whatever it is that you're seeing. And I always thought that was I, I once saw an interview with LL Cool J and he was like, you know, if you're looking for a mentor and you can't find it in your family, look around. There are people all over the world. Find somebody that amazes you, uh, is, you know, leads a life like you want to lead. I mean, and she was it for me. Joan Collins, Alexis Colby at Dynasty was it for me. That was the one that was going to no one was ever going to do anything to me, man. <laughs> is that the confidence that you got watching those stories or is that the lessons that you learned by hearing them? You know, I don't, I think that it was, it just made me admire strong women. Um, I, I applaud it. I, I, I applaud anybody who's strong. So, um, say, you know, same for men. I'm one of the very rare few people that actually appreciates arrogance in men and women. So it's like, you know, I'd rather have arrogance than somebody who's walking around hitting themselves on the head, telling me how much they hate themselves or, you know, then it's like, you know, do something. You gotta, you gotta do something about that. It's like, I've actually have friends that do do that. You know, like, oh, I'm so stupid. I'm so stupid. You know, and, and it's, and you have to think, wow, that's, that's how they feel about themselves. And, um, you know, some people can say arrogance is not confidence, but I, I, I actually disagree. I think arrogance can be confidence. If you have tried and succeeded in, in the areas that you want to, there's no reason why you can't feel confident in your abilities to be able to get the job done and feel confident that you can get the job done and feel confident that you can move forward and try something new and be successful at it. So it's, some, it's something you can build on and that will in turn, um, decide how you feel about yourself as well. But someone once told me that, um, I'm, not, I, I'm never going to get this quote right, but it was confidence uh, or self-esteem is how you feel about yourself and confidence, or wait a minute, confidence is what you do and self-esteem is appreciating what comes from what you do. I was like, wow, that's a, that's a really interesting <laughs> thing to yeah. say. Yeah. 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 And your childhood trauma, you went through therapy uh, with Jerry Olympic. 
that's his name and you quoted him in a lot of interviews almost every interview that you had you quoted him is that the first person that you ever spoke about your trauma or is there anybody that you shared it be beforehand uh well you know my two best friends that went from sixth grade all the way up until now um would be adriana malo and monica mallower and i spent every day with them so when i came back i told them what happened they were the first people but we're 12 what are we gonna do you know i mean like i as um the story that i tell about jerry limpic and why i think that he's so important is that adrienne and i had gone to see this girl and i to this day can't even tell you what her name is i met her once um, and I was sitting on a couch across from her. She was older than us and she was working in a daycare center. And she was seeing Jerry Olympic because she was married. She was about 28 or so. And her husband was coming in the door. She was telling us the story that her father had raped all of her sisters and her two brothers. And when the mom found out, the mom threw the kids out one by one. And in order for the kids to have a relationship with the mom, they had to accept the father. And she looked across the table from me and she said, you know, if you don't go and get help, you're gonna end up like me. And I didn't even know she knew. And I looked at Adriana and Adriana looked at me and, uh, you know, cause we didn't tell her. And she said, I can see it in you without you even opening your mouth. And she, she goes to the door and she hands me Jerry Olympics card. And I just kind of looked at her and she goes, trust me, it'll be the greatest phone call you ever make. And so I called Jerry Olympic and I told them, I said, you know, I don't have any money. I, I can't ask my family. They don't know I'm here. And he goes, do you have $5? And I said, yeah, I have $5. And he goes, that's all you need, $5. And he took me on for $5. And when we were in our second session, I had to let him know that my aunt and uncle were getting, trying to get custody of my nephew, my um, cousin's daughter who was eight years old. And Jerry said, Stacy, we can't let that happen. And so that was the reason that he reported my uncle, uh, even though I didn't want to do it, was to basically save my eight year old. I don't even know if the, I think she's a niece. I'm not she's my cousin's daughter. We had never met. And that's what started the whole chain reaction in my family was um, she needed a place to live and they didn't want her to end up in the foster care system. But she my grandparents took her in. And so that was the alternative. That was my grandmother took her in. And it I'm to this day, I don't think she even knows that that was the whole reason that this whole thing got started because I've never spoken to her. But you are like a guardian angel behind the scenes for her. Maybe, you know, I don't know if she looked at it that way because she loved my aunt and uncle. She, you know, she was very close to them and she wanted to live with them. That was her grandmother. So to her, maybe not so, but um, that was the reason that it was done and they had to basically back away from taking custody of her as a settlement agreement. I know. Who was the first person in your family to know your story? My grandmother and my mom, same oh. time. Oh, when you were showing the documentary? 
No. No. When I came back, when I was 11 years old, I sat down at the dining room table with my mom and my grandmother at 11 years old and told them what happened to me that summer. So you did explain to them at the time it happened. And was there any support from them? If so, how, what was the support that you got? There was no support. Yeah. Even today, I don't have. So yeah, we can't blame them. It's their capacity. The way I look at that situation is like, that's how much capacity they have to accept it. Well, and I think a therapist once put it to me was that if they had acknowledged it, they would have to do something about it. True. And they weren't willing to do that. Um, and that's, that's actually the really the cold hard truth about it is that they weren't willing to do something about it. He was living in Montana with my aunt, so they felt I was safe. And so their remedy was, I never had to see him again, but they moved back to San Diego when I was 13. So, you know, what do you do? The, the abuse never happened again. I mean, I fought for myself, so that, that, that was never gonna happen again. But I still had to see him for Christmases and holidays and birthdays and get togethers and everybody was treating him like he was just, you know, the greatest guy in the whole freaking planet. And I'm here. You know, and I'm expected to, at the age of 13, 14, 15, and 16, handle this like an adult, be able to move on, uh, check my feelings, and, you know, I mean, all kinds of totally inappropriate things to expect a child to yep. deal with, uh, you know, there's really, there's, there's no, mm -hmm. my grandmother, before she died, was, that was one of the last things that she said to me was that she asked God for forgiveness for not helping me. She asked my forgiveness too on the, on her, uh, in her hospital room. She asked for my forgiveness. And what I said to her was the actual truth. I said, you need to leave this planet knowing you were a phenomenal grandmother. We had a great life with you. One mistake is not going to erase everything that you taught. And I mean, and she was crying and I, you know, my grandmother was a devout Catholic. And I didn't want her thinking that she was not going to be in heaven, that she was going to be reunited with my grandfather. My grandfather was the one that didn't know. Nobody ever told him. He found out when I was 18, when the whole family thing blew up. Oh, he was extremely supportive and told my uncle that my uncle was never allowed to be in his home. And he was never allowed to, awesome. you know, and he broke down in a garage crying with me. And he said he was so sorry that he couldn't protect me and that I was very, very important to him. And I knew that, you know, I mean, like I knew that I was very important to my grandparents. They were very loving, great people. And my, it was very important to me that even though my grandmother carried that with her to her grave, that she needed to know that she did a wonderful, wonderful job as a grandmother and as a human being on this planet and that she couldn't, that she needed to get rid of that, that I was okay with what happened and she needed to move on and she needed to go be with my grandfather. And she died with a smile on her face. So I hope, you know, that she left here relieved because, you know, I mean, it, yeah, she was a wonderful person. And I, I same, same with my mom. 
you know, faults and all, but you know, they, like I said, they didn't handle it great. And that's why when the documentary was gonna come out, I really didn't wanna hurt my family that even though they made a mistake, they were good people that just didn't handle it the right way. And unfortunately I got caught in the middle of it, but they made up for it in so many other ways for many, many years after that. So it's sort of like, you know, I just can't be angry about what happened. And, you know, I, I don't want them leaving. The, I, I definitely did not want my grandmother leaving this planet with that on her conscience and thinking that she failed somehow because she didn't. She lived a really, she was a really wonderful person and um, she had a great story and she was great to everybody she knew. She brought over all nine of her brothers and sisters from Cuba, sponsored them. She, I mean, she was just a really, she learned how to speak English and, uh, and, she, and she had a terrible childhood and she managed to come here and be a success and be married to my grandfather for 58 years. And they loved each other till the day they died. Wow. So, you know, leave knowing you've, you've been in success. You know what I mean? Like one, it's a, it's a blimp and it's a big failure, but I'm okay. And so I think she knows that. I think she, I'm glad she knows that. In one of the interviews, you mentioned your family did not believe in many instances, actually, when you mentioned about this abuse happened, majority of your family did not believe. How did you handle that situation at that time? And what do you think about it now? How did I handle it at the time? My friends and I believed it. I was very angry, stayed angry, and I withdrew from society. That's how you handle it. I stayed under earphones for eight to 10 hours a day. Didn't talk to anybody except for my friends and um, started dressing in nothing but black, usually turtlenecks. Um, that's my staple. Everybody will always see me in black turtlenecks. Um, that's probably because I didn't want anybody looking at me. So I made sure that um, through those time periods, I was always in very baggy clothes. Um, I, you know, my hair was straight. I dropped out of modeling. Um, yeah, withdrew. I basically withdrew. It wasn't until I fell in love when I was 21 that everything opened back up again. And, and it was really weird. And if you look at my pictures from my, my teenage years to when I started to fall in love. I mean, it's like night and day. I became a completely different person. <laughs> you know, it's just like, wow. Like, look at this girl. Where did she come from? You know, I mean, it's like, I fell in love. I dropped 40 pounds. I mean, I was like, yeah, it was amazing. How did you do that? I have no idea, girl. I'm trying to do it right now, but I can't even figure out how to do it. But yeah, fall in love, I guess. I mean, you know, he was, uh, he was like sunshine. I fell in love with somebody who literally lit up a room when he walked into it. I mean, it was like, he just glowed of sun. And I was always in black turtlenecks, black scarves, black long skirts, black boot, you know, boots and you know, he walked in and he's like a ray of sunshine. So of course, you know, you're going to be attracted to that. I was, um, I want to say, I, I, I might've been a little jealous of him, you know, maybe hoping that I could be a little bit more like that. So I think he sort of brought that out in me in a nice way, you know? 
I can't look back on it, but that's, I, I withdrew and then I came out. When you are having all these situations, talking about the person who did this to you, what does forgiveness mean to you? I don't, I, I don't know. I have no idea. You, you, I don't have to, I don't, I don't understand what that means for people when they say to forgive the people that have abused you. I, I don't, I'm never going to forgive him. <laughs> Sorry, but it's not, he's not my daily thought. So I don't think of him at all. It never even crosses my mind. Um, when I took him on in court, when I walked out of the courtroom, I never thought about him after that. So I don't have to forgive anybody. His wife is still alive. I don't forgive her either. So, um, you know, my aunt is still walking around on this planet. Um, I don't, I, I've seen, I saw them at my grandmother's funeral was the first time I think I had seen him in probably 20 years, same with her. And they both looked at me and I just looked straight back at them and I wasn't backing down and I had everybody around me and it was just like, get out of my way. It's my grandma's funeral. And, um, but I, I think there's probably an intense hatred on her end towards me. Um, but my uncle did something that I thought was very interesting at my grandmother's funeral. He got up and he walked out of the family box and he went and sat in the audience. And I think he did that so that I can go and sit in the family box. And I always thought that was very an interesting thing for him to do. That stayed with me. Um, he died a few years after that, but I always thought that was a very interesting decision that he made. And he didn't come to my grandfather's funeral. My grandfather died 10 years earlier. He was not there to support his wife. And I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that my grandfather didn't want anything to do with him. And so he was not there and I did not have to face him at my grandfather's funeral. So I was a little surprised to see him at my grandmother's. Yeah, I, I, that, was, that was something that I wasn't expecting. And I'm not sure he thought I was gonna be there either, but um, you know, but, but I actually thought the reason that he did that was because he was acknowledging that he had done something to me, that he knew he didn't belong in that family box. I don't know. I mean, I can't say he's dead now, but I've always sort of, that was how I sort of kind of took it was that was his way of acknowledging that he had done something that he shouldn't have done. In the deal that you got uh, from the court, it was like, yeah, you have to accept your uncle also to the family. Instead, you chose to walk away. Why, why did you choose to walk away? What was happening to you at the time to choose to walk away? Though you know that you are going to lose your entire family over I, one I chose me, it was simple. It was me or him, I chose me. I was not willing to do that. And I, I, it was just never gonna happen. And um, it took probably about seven, I wanna say maybe seven years for my dad's side of the family to um, not my dad's side of the family, my grandparents. And it was very, very hard to be away from my grandparents, but she was my grandmother's daughter. My grandmother was not going to get rid of her daughter. Yeah. And so 
my grandfather wrote me a letter one day and was talking about begging me to come back into the family and that he missed me more than anything. And he had a stroke about a week after he wrote the letter. And so my brother arranged for me to see my grandfather without the family being there in the hospital. And, you know, went up and above and beyond to be able to do it. And from that point, my grandmother and my grandfather and I decided we were gonna lay down some rules so that I can spend time with them and never have to see anybody else. And that's what we did. And so they made it so that if I was at their home, my dad, my real dad, my aunt and my uncle could never be there at the same time. And so that was how we navigated through it. And I was able to spend the last, I wanna say maybe seven, maybe five, five to seven years with my grandfather before he passed away. He ended up getting Alzheimer's and he didn't know anybody, but for some strange odd reason, he knew me. And he knew my, I mean, definitely knew my grandmother. Um, his face would light up when she would come into the room. And, um, but I was one of the only ones that could take him out and, go, and take him out and go like to a movie or take him to McDonald's or come and talk to him and kind of watch, watch him go through the whole Alzheimer's thing. And I always said that, I always knew when my grandfather was there because you can see it in his eyes. Alzheimer's is all about the eyes and it's like somebody's present and they look at you and it's like they're, they may only be there for a second or they may be there for five minutes or they may, may be there for a day. Um, but my grandfather would go in and out and um, yeah, but I was able to be with him all the way to the end, which was really nice because that would have been my biggest regret not to be able to see or say goodbye to my grandpa. Mm -hmm. I, I couldn't, I had never, I don't know, I, I wouldn't, I would not have been able to get through it without, without seeing him. Okay, thank you for tuning in. And you can find me on all the socials at Smitha Gunturi and the show notes for any resources mentioned. See you next week. Take care.